0: Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.
1: Welcome to the mini break, your daily Podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, June 22nd. We do apologize for the lack of mini breaks last week. It wasn't due to a lack of action. There was some fantastic tennis played across the globe. And of course, we'll talk about all of that tennis on today's podcast. But I was home last weekend visiting my parents, visiting my little brother, seeing all of my extended family, doing the things we just haven't had much time to do here at Crack Rackets with all of the excitement that's happened through the first six months of the 2021 tennis season. So again, we do apologize for that. But look, we here at Crack Rackets, well aware of the fact. We've got the year's third Grand Slam right around the corner. Wimbledon starts next week. Now that's crazy to say, but it's the truth. And so what is our job here at Crack Rackets to prepare all of you listeners for the action that's about to unfold? What do we have in store for you on today's podcast to help do that? An overreaction Tuesday show. I want to talk about all of the results we saw this past week. And look, given the limited sample size of grass court matches we have to go off of. There is no 2020 grass court season for me to turn to, to say, well, remember Eastbourne last, last year? I don't know why I said last year. I, the reason I said last year is because I was going to say, remember Hala last year? We don't have any of that to turn to. We do have the 2019 grass court season, but of course that's in the rear view mirror. There have been so many developments. It feels like that generational shift. We see the results on both the men's and women's tours. This week it was Beratini and Umbert on the men's side. On the women's side, it was two first-time champions in Onjabur, Lucille Samsonova, that generational shift has occurred and it, it feels like it's even more striking two years later now than it was the last time we had a grass court season. So with all of that in mind, again, in overreaction Tuesday, meaning these past two weeks of grass court play, it's really all we've got. And I suppose one more week here this week to go off of as we head into this 2021 Wimbledon. So if any of these come off as overreactions, I do apologize. But again, we've gotten to see only so much of these players competing on the grass courts, the ones who had success this week. It it feels like it is telling, and it feels like it does give us some information heading into the 2021 Wimbledon. So on today's podcast, we want to talk about Berrettini winning London, Jabour making history in Birmingham, Umber taking Hala, Samsonova winning in Berlin. I'm going to mix in my top 10 contenders at the end of this show. Again, we are going to be previewing Wimbledon at length this week on our Great Shot podcast. I've already got podcasts locked in with Gil Gross with Ben Rothenberg, with a couple of others as well. So be on the lookout. For those to drop throughout the week, I chatted Wimbledon qualifying with David Gertler on today's Great Shout podcast, so all of you can go listen to that now if you want to know what's in store for us this week in terms of all of the Wimbledon action. But again, that's the agenda for today's podcast. Before I can get into all of that, I have to remind you that the reason we are able to do these podcasts day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you Crack Rackets listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and sincerely to all of you patrons on there. The match of the day segments are coming in particular. I think what I'm going to do to make up for it to all of you listeners is go one a day throughout Wimbledon to throw in an extra match of the day in the mix. Isn't that hard when we've got so many matches happening day in, day out? Because I've been slacking a little bit there as well. But if that sounds interesting to you, you want to hear some bonus coverage, the best match day in, day out at Wimbledon, or just support our efforts here at Crack Rackets. You can become a CR patron by checking out our website, crackrackets.com today. You can also find some exceptional merchandise. You guys see it. If you watch our YouTube channel, I'm always decked out in Crack Rackets gear. I like to think whenever I show up at a professional event, and I think I'm going to head to the 25K in Champagne this weekend to any of you who will be floating around that area. If you listen to this podcast at Great Shop Pod, slide into the DMs. But look, if you want to deck yourself out in some Crack Rackets gear, or maybe you're a little bit late on your Mother's Day, your Father's Day gifts, they happen to be listeners of the show, big tennis fans, you want to deck them out as well, you can find that gear On the website, Crackrackets.com, support of those sorts of things do help pay the bills. So we do sincerely appreciate all of you who have already done that. And then, of course, day in, day out, we cannot be more grateful for the support we get from our friends over at Tennis Point. You guys know the deal. A little bit of rebranding done by our friends at Midwest Sports. Nevertheless, all of the best equipment at all of the best prices can still be found with our friends at Tennis Point. You go to Tennis-Point.com right now. It's the symbol, not the spelling. You use our promo code CR15, you'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. And look, it's officially summertime tennis. You might want to redeck deck yourself out with some new swag. It's a lot of decking. We've used that word a lot here, so I'm going to avoid that moving forward. But perhaps you want to update your gear, update your look, rock the Wimbledon Whites over the next two weeks. You can find All of the best gear, all of the best equipment with our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, you can tell I'm compensating for missed time with a five-minute introduction there. Let's get into last week's action, a little overreaction Tuesday here on the Mini Break Podcast. And the place to start is with Matteo Berrettini. Because, folks, when I say it's overreaction Tuesday, here's the take I have for all of you. Matteo Berrettini is your second favorite to win the 2021 Wimbledon. Now let's be clear, and this is a topic we'll discuss at further length with Gil Gross on a podcast later this week, so I'm not going to go too deep into the stats. But Matteo, uh, you know, the gap between Novak Djokovic and Matteo Berrettini and and anyone really, whomever you think your second favorite is, has perhaps never been larger at a major since maybe the prime days 2011 or 2015 for Novak Djokovic. As it is at this 2021 Wimbledon. You look at the draw. Rafael Nadal out of the event. You have a Roger Federer coming into this event who, let's be honest, just has not played much tennis over the course of the past 12 months. And you look for Federer in particular, the tennis that he has played, I mean, I think it's fair to say he struggled. Now, of course, we all know Roger Federer is far better than his number 65 ELO rating right now, his number 8 overall ranking when he plays his best stuff. But you look for the 39-year-old, 5-3. and three. In his last 52 weeks, he played Doha, lost to Basilashvili there, lost first round Geneva to Andahar, looked pretty good in his three wins at Roland Garros, but then pulled out of his fourth round match, beat Savashka before losing to FAA in HALA this past week. I think it's fair to say this is not 2006 Roger Federer. This isn't even 2017 Roger Federer, 2016 Roger Federer. We're not exactly sure what Federer we're going to get, so to just pencil him in at the number two spot, respectfully, I don't think that's a fair thing to do. And then you look at the unproven nature on grass courts of guys like Medvedev, of a Tsitsipas, of a Rublev, even a who I know has made the fourth round here, but we don't have a big sample size of grass court matches for all of those players. I'll just throw a name out there in general. We feel like Andre Rublev's been a part of our lives for a while now, right? Well, in his career, he's played 12 total grass court matches. He's 8-4 and four in those matches, but like... That's not a big sample size to go off of. Meanwhile, for Matteo Berrettini, you look at this point. Why is he my second favorite more so than a guy like a Zverev, like a Medvedev, like a Tsitsipas or a Rublev? Uh, it's because you look at the sample size for grass. The numbers speak for themselves. Matteo and Berrettini now 18 and five overall in ATP-level grass court matches, as he earns the title in Queens Club this past week. It's his second title of his career on the grass courts. You go back to his other full grass court season, 2019, he won the event in Stuttgart. At that event, you know, he beat guys like hatchinov Kudla, FAA, who we know how good they can be on grass courts. At this event, beats Travaglia, Murray, Evans, Demon Hour, and then Cam Norrie drops only one set in the course of the week. It was his match against Cam Norrie to earn his second career title, as I mentioned, on grass. Fifth career title overall at the ATP level. You look for Matteo Berrettini, the numbers say it. The eye tests say it. This is a guy playing the best tennis of his career. A guy who continues to get better and better with each passing ATP season. And we'll start with, you know, the superficial numbers. You look for Matteo Berrettini, currently ranked number 9 in the world. That's one off his career high of number 8, which he reached at the end of 2019. Of course, he made the year-end finals that season. There's a lot of talk. It was one of the lower point totals in history to qualify for that 8th spot. Should he be really considered in that conversation, top 8, top 10 guy? Guy. I think he's proven that answer is an unequivocal yes. He's now thirty-four and eleven in his last fifty-two weeks. You look at numbers like Elo ratings on via Tennis Abstract. Berrettini number seven in the abstract Elo rating behind Djokovic, Nadal, Ct, Medvedev, Zverev, Rublev. Right behind him is Dominic Team. You look in in terms of grass court specific Elo rating now with this result, Berrettini up to number four. You look twenty twenty one specific results only a twenty-six and six. Matteo Berrettini ranked fourth in 2021 ELO. All of those numbers sound correct. And we know he has an elite first serve, an elite serve overall. You look for Matteo Berrettini in his career. He's a guy who uh, has consistently won 85% or higher of his service games. You look for him right now on Tennis Abstracts ELO, uh, our Tennis Abstracts Stats Leaderboard, excuse me. He has a 90.3 hold percentage. That's third best. Amongst top 50 players, it goes Rayonich 1, Isner 2, Berrettini 3. When the conversation you're in is with Rayonich and Isner, who, by the way, are the only two other guys on tour right now to be over that 90% mark— you are the elite of the elite of servers on the ATP tour and you look for Berrettini i mean across the board his first serve win per, uh, first serve point win percentage he's number 2 he's at 80.3% that's behind only Milos Raonic over these last 52 weeks you look at his second serve win percentage uh, Matteo Berrettini at eighth Overall. You look again, I mentioned the hold percentage. He's third overall. You look at his ace percentage amongst these top players. He's fifth overall. By every metric, he is a dominant server. And that's what we see via the eye test as well with Berrettini. His ability to use that serve to set up a plus one ball, in particular, a first forehand. And that forehand is elite. When he can find forehands on the court, more often than not, he's either hitting that forehand for a winner. Certainly, he's taking control of the point. And he just, that ball is so heavy, even on a grass court, it rips through these courts and the weight of that shot for any opponent to try and get any response to it either. It's a really, really difficult ball to play. And look, let's be honest. I know the match with Musetti, he was down two sets to love. I know against Tsitsipas, he was down two sets to love. But in my opinion, the person who came closest to beating Djokovic at the French Open was Matteo Berrettini in that four-set loss he had in the quarterfinals. And... Again, it's just because he plays so overwhelmingly on his terms it doesn't matter what his opponents do when he's clicking. And you look at his results over the past week. I mean, he won over 80% of his first serve points in every match he played that peaked in the Cam Nori final, where he won 90.6% of his first serve points. You look at the second serve numbers for him. He was at 55% uh, in terms of his second serve points. When you look for him overall in the week, he was only broken twice. Both of those breaks of serve coming in his first round match against... he get broken both times, excuse me, by Travaglia, He holds serve at an elite rate. The numbers prove it, the eye test proves it. He's comfortable moving forward. He's comfortable serving and volleying. He's comfortable hitting approaches off both wings. The question of course is if you can get him on his back foot, which isn't an easy thing to do because despite his, you know, bulk, despite his size, he still moves so fluidly around the court. He is one of those freak next gen athletes. Um the question is his backhand. It's always been attackable, particularly with this serve, but he's gotten better and better at it through each passing season. You look, uh, you know, going back four seasons ago, he was at 34.2% win percentage on his return points one. In 2019, that number was 34.7. In 2020, that number was 35.7. In 2021, that number is now 37.9%. And look, that's still bottom 15 of the top 50 players in terms of return points one, But it's gotten better and better, and his, he's holding serve at an elite rate, and if that return number creeps up, if he can get that number even top 20, that's a top five player because he is— that. that's essentially Stefano Tsitsipas from a metric standpoint. You know, is just a little bit worse of a returner, but his number has gotten better as the seasons have progressed, and you look at him here. Now, again, on these grass courts, he returns about as well as grass on grass courts as he does anywhere in his career. For his career in ATP-level matches, he's got a 17.9 break percentage. Uh, on grass, it's at 17.1. For his career, he's won about 35.3% of his return points on grass. That number's 34%. It's It's good, not great. And his serve is obviously amplified. So when he doesn't drop off too much as a returner, he's always been a guy who is someone who takes chances, is aggressive with his returns. That's what you have to do on a grass court. And then he's still holding at an elite rate. It's why these grass courts seem to suit him so well in his career. And you look overall, he's got a 63% win percentage overall in ATP-level matches, 78%, that 18-5 number on grass Again, it all translates, you, and you see it, you saw it all week long against Nori, as disciplined as Nori was trying to find the Matteo Berrettini backhand, he just didn't have enough power to overwhelm Berrettini. Berrettini was able to find enough forehands in his return games, be the aggressor, and get the two breaks of serve he needed in sets one and three, just gets a couple of deep backhands on Cam Nori, a deep backhand return down the center, in particular draws an error on the break point in the third set, and then... You know, look... As good as Cam Nori is moving the ball around the court, he doesn't have that big enough weapon to—I mean, he almost won this match, let's be clear—but he didn't have a big enough weapon in the crunch time to prevent Berrettini from finding forehands, and as I started this rant with, if Berrettini finds the forehand, more often than not, he is winning the point. He was sensational all week long, and again, whether it was Evans with the creativity, the slice, the dice, Demon Hour with his relentless movement, his ability to bunt the ball you know, flat and just down the line and keep you on— with his athleticism and then Nori, who is just a relentless discipline and who had the momentum on his side, takes that second set breaker seven six and then hits an incredible down the line passing shot winner for Love 15 in that opening service game. It doesn't matter because Berrettini can erase a deficit with two big shots, and he did that all week long. He's my second favorite. That's the overreaction for you heading into, uh, coming into this Tuesday, and the overreaction heading into Wimbledon. He's my second favorite, I think. It obviously depends how the draw breaks down, but if it's not Novak Djokovic right now, I think the guy who's going to win Wimbledon is Matteo Berrettini. As I mentioned, fifth career uh, ATP title, eighth career ATP final. He's now made finals on each and every surface. The only surface he doesn't have a title on is a, the hard courts, uh, and it does feel like, hey, if he can— I mean, do we really think he's not going to win a hard court title in his career with that serve, that forehand semifinalist at the U.S. Open? All of the surfaces work for Matteo Berrettini. This is a guy who I think is going to be in the top 10 for the next five years. He's just got the weapons. He's got the power— and he's got the discipline and and just the hubris as well, a willingness to move forward, a willingness to play big in the big moments. And then, yes, it's a glaring weakness in that he chips the backhand and it feels like it's an attackable shot with the serve, but... Glaring weakness is sometimes the best weakness because guess who's going to know to work on it each and every day, the same way Steve Johnson did, the same way all of these guys did. And with the improvements we've seen from Berrettini on that wing already, I think it's only going to get better and better. Matteo Berrettini is my second favorite to win the 2021 Wimbledon. And again, that gap between he and Djokovic is huge. But I'm on the Berrettini bandwagon, and I think all of you should be as well. Now, it's not going to come as a shock to any of you to learn Cam Nori, former number one player in the nation in college tennis, now number 34 in the world, a new career high for the 25-year-old. Not going to surprise any of you to learn I'm on that bandwagon, but you look for Nori now, 41-21. and 21. In his last 52 weeks of play, you look for him overall. He's made 16 ATP-level quarterfinals in his career... Eight of them have come in the last 15 months, and you look at this season in general, he's made six quarterfinals overall, he's now made four semifinals here, and obviously the three finals as well. Now, he's still chasing that first ATP title, 0-4 in his four attempts, again, lost in Estoril to Ramos, Vanolas, lost in Leon to Tsitsipas, now the three-set loss to Berrettini, I mean, you look at all of those losses, the context of them. It was 7-6 in the third to Estrella. He lost in Lyon to a Tsitsipas, who was up two sets to love on Novak Djokovic in the damn French Open final. And then, you know, here again, played Berrettini so close. And you look for Nori all week long, whether it was, you know, the win over Karatsev, the win over Shapovalov, he just doesn't beat himself. He puts himself in a position at the end of every game, at the end of every set, at the end of every match, to just stay alive and be in the competition. And again, he does such a good job of anticipating. I think he's kind of a comfortable mover on these grass courts, as tough as that is to say for anyone. And then he just does such a good job of moving the ball around the court, attacking open space. He doesn't feel the need to stay cross-court if you're leaving the down-the-line open. He doesn't feel the need, although against Berrettini, he did a really disciplined job of attacking that Berrettini backhand. And look, not being afraid, Berrettini was going to camp over on that outside, hit an inside-out or inside-in forehand, and Nori had confidence that he could track that ball down if Baratini win inside out, beat Berrettini to the spot with his next forehand. He made a high percentage of first serves all week long. You look for Nori, he was over 70% in three of his five matches, and in his other two, he was 65% or higher. Certainly... You know, to get a Jack Draper, to get an Albert Ramos-Vanolas, to get a Shapovalov who had to finish his earlier match against Francis Tiafo that same day. I mean, those were things that benefited Nori, but there's a reason all of the metrics love Cam Nori right now. You look in terms of overall ELO, Cam Nori finds himself in 13th. You look grass court-specific ELO. Again, small sample size prevailing here, but Cam Nori right now a top 30 player in grass court-specific ELO. And you look for him 2021. Only. I mean, Cam Nori's number six. And I know it's crazy to say, but he's 32 and 13 this year. The only person who's achieved more wins on the ATP tour than uh, Cam Nori this season is Stefano Tsitsipas. Like, at a certain point, there's a reason the ELO ratings look the way they do. Now, do I think Cam Nori is the 6th best player in the world right now? No. Do I think Cam Nori is closer to being the 13th best person, like he is in overall ELO, to the 34th best player on tour? like he is right now in the ATP rankings? Yes, I do. And the numbers speak for themselves. As I mentioned earlier, it's not just, you know, one off a final. This is his third final of the year. It's not a one-off semifinal run. Fourth semifinal of the year, as I mentioned earlier. It's his sixth quarterfinal final I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. This is what it looks like when a player's breaking through. And it's worth reminding everyone, Cam Norrie played multiple years of college tennis. So despite the fact that he turns 26 in August, this is still really only his, I'll say, second full season of ATP level action. Of course, there was the cutoff last year with the pandemic, but he's clearly found his groove. It's a fantastic final for him here. And again, you just look at these past results for Cam Norrie. Let's just, I, I mean, you, can go all I'm not going to read them all because again I'm going back all the way season but you want to just look this 2021 season Delray Beach semifinal, third round loss to Nadal at the Australian Open qualifies for Rotterdam round of 16 loss to hatchinov round of 16 in Marseille quarterfinals Acapulco round of 16 Miami quarterfinals Barcelona final of Estorol round of 32 in Rome after coming through qualifying finals in Lyon round of 32 Roland Garros loses to Nadal Finals of Queen's Club loses to Berrettini. The losses speak for themselves. He has been that exceptional of late. He belongs in the top 50, belongs in the top 40 and I don't I think not before long. He's going to find himself in the top 30 and maybe higher now. Does he have the weapon, the explosiveness to you know, win that Grand Slam someday, be a top 10 player perennially. I don't know about that. But does he have every toolbox, every tool in the toolbox? Does he check off every mark from a competitive standpoint, from a physical standpoint you want in your modern player? I think the answer to that is yes. He's proven himself across all three surfaces. Overreaction Tuesday. Cam Norrie. Welcome to the top 50. Welcome to the top 40. I think we're going to be seeing you for quite a bit of time now. That's the big breakdown from London. And again, I feel the need to make up for the fact that I haven't had many mini breaks of late. So just to talk about some of the other results we saw there on the week. I mean, Nori, Berrettini, the headliners, but, you know, I thought it was a good week for a couple of 1999ers in Alex Diemenauer and Dennis Shabaval. Diemenauer struggled so much here, particularly during the clay court season, lost, what was it, four matches in a row or something crazy like that, and just clearly was having difficulties hitting through those court, finding his comfort on the surface. But grass courts, with his flat game, with his ability to beat players to the spot, with his decisiveness when he goes down the line, his ability as a returner as well. This is a good surface for him, and we've seen him win a challenger title on the grass courts before. To see him reach the semifinals, get a good win over Millman, a really good win over an informed Chilich in three sets in the quarterfinals. Again, Berrettini just had that overwhelming serve, that overwhelming weapon where he was able to hit through and hit around Hour and hit him off the court. But it was a good week for him. Second week of Wimbledon very much in the cards for Alex Demon Hour. And to be honest, I don't he's not gonna be a top sixteen seed, but that should be the goal barring him drawing a Djokovic. Like there's no other player besides Novak Djokovic and honestly Matteo Berrettini, who is a sure thing to beat Demon Hour on the grass. That's a good uh, that's a very good thing if you are a Demon Hour fan and you're looking for that stock to rise. Feel like you can get it pretty low right now. So, you know, perhaps invest in Demon Hour. I think the back half of the season certainly always where he is going to shine. Ditto for Denis Shapovalov, who just feels like we haven't talked about much here in this 2021 season. And of course, for Shapovalov, there have been a bunch of injuries that he's dealt with as well and just, you know, various, you know, pulling out of events. Obviously, we were all looking forward to seeing him compete in the French Open after he made the final of Geneva, just wasn't quite able to do so. But semifinals of Queens Club, good result for him, good wins over Tiafo, and, you know, he played Feliciano Lopez the week before, and Feliciano Lopez, again, a guy who's willing to move forward, go down the line, be decisive. He's a top 10 grass court ELO player. Now, he's not a top 10 grass court player right now, but that speaks to his experience on the surface. And Shapovalov looked much better in beating him the second time than he did in beating him in three sets the first time. And that's a big thing for a young player. When you're playing a player twice in a row, to see someone make an adjustment and put forward a better result, uh, I think that's a a sign of growth from Shapovalov. And again, Nori just kind of worked him to death. And you saw that first serve percentage for Shapovalov diminish as the match went on. And his second serve just felt like they were kind of sitting ducks towards the end of the match. But thought it was a good first two weeks of grass court action for Shapovalov. Again, quarterfinals in Stuttgart. He lost 5-6 and six to Chilich, who went on to win the event. And then here loses it to a very much informed Norrie, but beats Tiafo the round before. And we saw Tiafo win a challenger level on the grass the week before. Again, second week is the expectation for Denis Shapovalov at this Wimbledon. He's got the weapons to do it. He's got the athleticism to do it. It was a good week for him in London as he ends up making the semifinals. Now again, to wrap it up, Dan Evans, we know how dangerous he can be certainly if the draw breaks right second week's in the cards for him. Expect to read about Francis Tiapo as one of my sleepers when we do our Cracked Rackets 5v5 panel, talking about Wimbledon, which you'll all be able to read either uh, Friday or early next week. And then of course, Chilich quarterfinals, Jack Draper, who we talked about. Jack Draper is Yuri Vesely, 1.25. A little bit more athleticism, a little bit more more competitive spirit to him and a little bit more decisiveness as well, at least this early in his career. Draper's a guy a lot of people who have their eyes on the junior circuit have kept their eyes on for a while. You see the young British lefty making his first ATP-level quarterfinal before bowing out to Cam Nori. But it was a good week of tennis overall in London. Again, given the small sample size we have, we'll take whatever we can get. That was ATP 500 number one. Hey Cracked fans, before we get back to today's episode, I just want to let all of you listeners know that all of the content we produce here at CR is made possible due to the support we get from our friends over at Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming equipment in the world manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels that's right folks imagine shaving with a sleek well-designed and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. And in a twist of poetic justice, I think our friends at Manscaped know the grass court season is upon us here in the tennis world. In honor of that grass court season, they just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawn Mower 4.0. You heard that right, the Lawn Mower 4.0. You can join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their most sensitive region of their body with this exclusive offer for you. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code new please at manscaped.com that's right they let us stick with the tennis theme get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code new please at manscaped.com and look a little personal testimonial. I think anyone who's met me in two seconds will be like, eyebrows, thick, legs, very hairy. Guess what? It looks that way everywhere, folks. And I can tell you firsthand, Manscaped gets the job done. Again, get 20% off and free shipping with the code Please at Manscaped.com and make shaving time your favorite time. Manscaped.com. The promo code is Please. Let's switch gears now, talk about one of the WTA uh, events we saw unfold last week, and let's talk about, we'll stick in London, I suppose, to talk about a much-deserving first-time WTA champion this past week, as Own Jabeur becomes the first Arab woman to win a WTA-level title. She earns a 7-5-6-4 victory over Daria Kasatkina to earn the victory. You look for Own Jabeur. You know, I, I did this whole thing on the 1995s after the French Open talking about Krejcikova, Sakari, Mertens, Contave, Brady, uh, Mukova, I believe, is, and she might be a 96er, but all of those players who have obviously made a jump these past 52 weeks. Well, she's a 1994, but developmentally-wise jabur is on the exact same curve and you look for her now she's up to number 24 in the live rankings that's a career high for her but that is underselling her success over these past 52 weeks she's now 41 and 16 overall that's a 72 percent win percentage generally when you're winning 72 percent of your matches you're comfortably inside the top 20 if not a top 15 player and to be honest that's what the rest of the metrics say own Jibour is you look for her overall she's number 15 in total elite rating now again it's a small sample size but she's number 4 in grass court ELO rating her 28 and 10 record in 2021 has her good for 8th in 2021 ELO rating and then you guys know I like my clubs the top 15 club on the WTA side has a new member here this week the top 15 club a reminder those players who are top 15 in hold percentage how frequently they're holding serve and break percentage how frequently they're breaking serve on tennis abstract statistics leaderboard we now have a four member club, as I mentioned. It's Garbin Muguruza, it's Iga Swiatek, it's Arenas Sabalenka. And now it's Jabor joining the list. You look for Onjabur. She's got a 72.9% break percentage. That's good for 15th overall. You look for her in terms of her break percentage. She's, uh, Excuse me, yeah, her break percentage. Uh, if I said break before, that was her hold percentage. Excuse me, you look for her break percentage. Now Onjabur currently at 41.3%. That's good for 13th. Look, it's a bottom half of the top. 15 club, and I don't think we put Onjabur on the same tier as a Sabalenka, as a Sviantek, as a Muguruza yet, but certainly she belongs in that Mertens-Kanteve-Sakari conversation just because of how much she can do on the court. And if you don't have a big weapon to hurt through her, as Daria Casacchina learned in this final here in London, you're just not going to beat her. And you look for Jabour in this match. She only made 46% of her first serves, but she won 74% of those first serve points. When she was able to play first strike, she won the point. You look for her overall in the match. She faced seven break points, but she saved four of them. And more often than not, she was able to come up with a big big first serve on those break points, and then, look, she attacked everything that Casiquina threw on her with the serve, and that's where everything starts for Shabor. She's just so rock solid off of both wings, forehand side, backhand side. Both wings are compact. Her ability to hit the slice off of both sides, to hit the backhand drop shot as well as the forehand drop shots, her willingness to play a short angle as well as play a big down-the-line flat shot, her willingness to play lob, she just... She incorporates a little bit of everything. And if you don't have the big first strike or the big serve to break that rhythm, to prevent Jabour from getting into her patterns, getting into her games, it's really, really difficult to beat her. And look, Kasichina... I think physically, she's a really tough out. And you look for her again uh, for Kasichina, someone we talked about a lot to start the year. She's clearly refound her form here in this 2021 season. You look for her, she's 34-17 and 17 overall now in her last 52. This was her third final of the season. First one she's lost, but you look even beyond those finals. Again, uh, I suppose it's th- three finals, which means uh, three quarterfinals as well. But she's just having success at every event because she puts a ton of pressure on you. She does make a high percentage of her first serves and, you know, wins uh, a good amount of those points. She made 66% of her first serves in this match, won 53% of her first serve points. But again, that just wasn't quite good enough against Jabour, who just puts you under so much pressure. And Casaquina. I think is as comfortable of a mover as you're going to find on these grass courts. She was really, she did a really good job of tracking down those Jabour outer third balls, withstanding that first strike and forcing Jabour to hit a second winner. But Jabour hit that second winner more frequently than not in this match and was comfortable moving forward as well. Raced out to a big four-love lead in the second set. And, you know, at that point, Kasakina kind of employed that f- attitude where it was like, you know what, I, I can't just keep playing on her terms. It's time for me to hit my forehand down the line more. It's time for me to be the one who changes directions, who goes big into the open space and just makes a bet that I can beat Jabour to the spot. Because, of course, if you go down the line and it's not a winner on a grass court, you're screwed. Because now you can get hit behind you, now you can get hit the open cross court, and you've just lost the momentum in the point Kasakina started playing with a little bit more risk, with a little bit more aggression. She was able to narrow that break deficit to just one and ends up uh, closing uh, that deficit in the second set. But in the end, Jabor 7-5, 6-4. And by the way, Jabor served for the first set, 5-4. Kasakina was able to break. Jabour gets that break right back, whether it was the chip bump, slice return, just whatever it took to get into her first shots to become the aggressor and, you know, her patience as well. She just... She did a fantastic job in this match. And again, you look for Jabour. She's gotten better at everything over these past few seasons. First serve percentage has gone from 64 uh, first serve win percentage, excuse me, has gone from 64.7 to 68.9 to 70% over these past 3 years. The second serve percentage 44.6 to 49.8 to 49.9. Serve points one overall 55.6 59.9 60.8. You look at the return points one 42.5 45% now at 46% this season. She's gotten better and better at everything. She's comfortable moving physically on each and every surface. You look at her records, her splits across the board. She's 41-16, in I mentioned, in her last 52 overall, but you now look across surfaces. You know, she's got that 57% win percentage in WTA level matches for her career. It's 56% on hard courts, 56% on clay courts, 65% on grass courts. She's 17-9 and overall. You look, in 2019 she made a semifinal in Eastbourne before withdrawing uh, to Kerber in Wimbledon 2018. She qualifies for the event uh, before getting knocked off by Sinyakova, 9-7 in the third set. Again, her ability to play first strike but to incorporate variety as well. I think grass courts are going to be very kind to Onjibor. Her surface versatility is why I think she's got a lot of staying power in the top 20. And you can say that about a lot of players right now. And certainly there are players out there who have the overwhelming first strike. You think of someone like an Iga Svjantek. You think of someone like an Arena Sabalenka uh, who do have the sort of weapons to overwhelm Onjibor. But short of that you know, a Petra Kvitova as well. And you, and, you know, you look at the losses for uh, Jabour over these past 52 weeks. It's Osaka's of the world, the Sabalenka's of the world. Coco Goff and her obviously have battled back and forth. She played Vika as well. You got to be really, really good to beat on Jabour right now. Is she one of the 10 favorites on the women's side to win the event? You look overall at the field and, you know, again, so many of those top women are injured right now. We don't know about Ashley Barty. We don't know Kvitova, Muguruza, Halep. How healthy are they going to be entering the event? Those are probably your top four because Iga Swiatek earned her first grass court win today. And like, we just haven't seen enough of her to throw her in that conversation, despite how good she's been everywhere else. And, you know, again, traditionally, Serena, grass courts, you like it, but the Serena we saw at the French Open, do we think she can make enough first serves, play good enough first strike tennis to win seven consecutive matches at this point at Wimbledon? Is she your favorite? Like, do you, is that the favorite entering the 2021 Wimbledon? It feels crazy given what we've seen unfold at these past, what, nine or ten women's Grand Slam events. Then you start to get to that Goff, Sakari, Mertens, Bencic, Jabur conversation I mean, again, it's it depends on how healthy those top four players are. Certainly, there's no Naomi Osaka at the event. If you want to say Ons Jabeur is one of your ten favorites to win the women's event, if you think she's the Barbara Krejcikova of this uh, of this year's Wimbledon. I can't argue with that. Like, I think that's a pretty good take to say. And then again, I want to plug something Reem Abu Leo wrote because she, uh, I believe, writing for Wimbledon.com, was talked about the influence of uh, On title and what this means for Arab tennis moving forward. And, you know, she got fantastic quotes from, I believe, Meyer Sharif uh, in the piece from Mohammed Safwat as well. Uh, it was fantastic, uh, certainly for uh, both of these, uh, for for uh, just the first tennis in general, to see Own Jabeur in the winner's circle. And again, given everything she's accomplished over these past uh, 52 weeks of play, it feels like this first title was inevitable. She ultimately gets the job done, advancing to the title in Birmingham. And again, the draw did open up for her. She got Watson, Potapova, uh, and Fernan- Fernandez and McNally instead of her potential opponents at the event, which I believe, if memory serves me correctly, uh, were seeds such as, uh, you know, she was the number two seed, but she avoided playing Fiona Farrow or Kiki Mladenovic. She avoided Donna Vekic. She avoided number one seed Elisa Mertens, who was knocked out in the first round, but Kasikina is playing as well as anyone else in the draw. And again, given the limited sample size, that's 7-6 in the third match against Layla Fernandez- Keep your eye on Layla Fernandez, folks. If she finds herself in the second week, it would fit the narrative of her career arc. That was one of my takeaways from this event in Birmingham as well. I've already talked about Kasekina absolutely can make the second week. Coco Vandeweghe was spectacular, making the semifinal, beating Christina Pliskova, beating Tamnyanovich, beating Marie Buzkova. Her serve, her ability to play first strike, her decisiveness, aggressiveness with the return. When it's clicking, there's no reason she couldn't find herself in a second or third round upset a seed. I just haven't seen her play enough yet. And again, that match-in, match-out, week-in, week-out consistency that comes with playing on tour each and every week. I'm not going to make the bold prediction that she makes the second week, but she certainly has the weapons to do so. Heather Watson always going to be dangerous, particularly when she's got that crowd behind her. And she was great in knocking off, I would say, a, a fatigued Vekic after that Georgie second-round match. But still, you play the match in front of you, Watson. Just worked her to the outer thirds and drew the errors. It's a really good week of tennis in Birmingham overall. Of course, capped off with Owen first ti- uh WTA-level title of her career. That was the action we saw happen over in Birmingham. Let's go back to the men's side now, and again, we're sticking with the theme here. It's an overreaction Tuesday, limited grass court sample size. What did we learn heading into Wimbledon? Well, I think we learned that Ugo Umber is going to make the second week of the event. Now, of course, that does depend on the draw, if he's dealt a tough seed or, you know, one of those dangerous floaters, anything can happen. And I reserve the right to withdraw any takes I have had until we see that draw come out. But if it's an overreaction uh Tuesday, we have to talk about Ugo Umber, who continues to thrive on the grass courts. You look for him overall in his career, 14 and five now, and you look at what he's accomplished. Obviously he gets the title here in Hala, his first on the grass courts, but he has made a round of 16 at Wimbledon before. It was the last Wimbledon we saw, 2019, where he beat Monfils, he beat FAA before bowing out in three sets to Djokovic in that third round. You look for him, he followed that up, made the semifinals in Newport before losing to three sets by uh, to John Isner, who certainly with his serve, his weapons, you can understand why that happened. You know, uh, you look at this season, quarterfinals in Stuttgart, lost 6-6 six and six to eventual finalist FAA. He got revenge for that match. Three-set win over. For FAA in the semifinals and just look at the players he beat all big servers big weapons guys whose games translate well to the grass courts this was a title well-earned for Umber who beat Sam Query Alex Virev Sebastian Korda Felix Ogier Aliassime and then Andre Rublev 6376 on the way to the title and you look by the way for Ugo Umber third career ATP level title they've all come since the start of the 2020 season I mean grass courts are just where he has success. Ian you know, for Hugo Umber that funky forehand grip uh he's not a, the the return numbers have never been great for him. He's a guy who you constantly see in the that bottom 10 of the ATP uh, stats leaderboard on Tennis Abstract and you look for him here over his last 52 weeks by break percentage uh you know the numbers are not kind to Ugo Humbert. He's 48th in the top 50. The only players who have lower break percentages than him, John Isner and Riley Opelka. That's not good company to be with. And again, when you're in the return, normally if you're hanging out with Isner, Opelka, Federer, Chilich, and Bublik, and Reionich, that's usually good news. Uh, except we're not talking about serving. We're talking about returning. And those are guys who are u- uber aggressive, who take big cuts at the ball. And look, on grass courts, that ends up working out for you. And Ugo Umberto to his credit, is an elite server. He is a guy, you look at these tennis abstract, again, elo uh, leaderboards, Ugo Umberto's a top 15 server. He's currently number 11 uh, overall in hold percentage. And you look over these last 52 weeks, he's hold, held 84.4% of the time. You look at his numbers, it was a rough clay court season. For him, there's no denying that he lost five consecutive matches between Esterol and Roland Garros, losing to Davidovich, Fokina, Karatsev, Sinner, Nishioka, and Barankis over that stretch of time. But you take those five losses out, he's 29 and 15. Over his last 52 weeks, and when he plays on a faster surface like a hard court, like these grass courts, clearly he's found success here in his career. You look overall on the week he was able to win over 70% of his first serve points in each and every match he played. He was over 50% of his first serve points in four of the five. Was you know only broken. uh, I believe you look on the week. Let's see. He was broken three times against Query in that 7-6 in the third match. Once against Virev. Once against quarter three times against FAA, then wasn't broken against Andre Rublev, that's a damn good serving performance. And his ability to hit these low pickup down the line winners on plus one balls are just silly. And there's a hubris to him. There's a little slap happiness. There's a little, you know, again, f*** it attitude to everything that Ugo Umbert does. And it's kind of, you're just like, how did that go in? Like, how did that shot work? How did you manage to scoop that Andre Rublev return that landed at your feet and redirect the ball down the line with that extreme of a forehand grip with a ball that's skidding at your feet and hit it for a winner? That's the sort of f- Hugo Ugo Umbert, it feels like does constantly uh, within his matches, but it works. And there's a confidence to him, a decisiveness to him, and, you know, again, a swagger to him that you need to have on these grass courts where you're not playing 15, 20, 30 ball rallies, where the moment you see an opening, you have to take it. And to Hugo Umber's credit, he always takes it. And again, he's got that condensed backhand side, and he is a lefty, and he opens up interesting angles and puts you in awkward positions as an opponent. And he found that Andre Rublev backhand routinely throughout the course of this match. But just executed really well across the board and, you know, again, won a bunch of tiebreakers on the week. I believe he went five and one in the six tiebreakers that he played A little of that is luck, there's no denying that, but he consistently found the big first serves in the big moments, great at hitting that ad side slice, lefty slice serve out wide and opening up an inside out or down the line forehand, does such a good job of taking that backhand cross court to open space as well, it is a little bit nori-ish with the way he guides it, but sometimes he just turns into it and rips it as well, he'll mix in the drop shot, he'll mix in some serve and volley, move forward He's a guy who just keeps you uncomfortable. You never know where Ugo Ember is going to hit the ball next. You never know how he's going to hit the ball next. It makes him a really difficult opponent, particularly in a grass court match where it's so hard to find your rhythm uh, to match up against. And again, you look this week, three set wins in his first four matches before the straight set win over Rublev and to beat Queries, Virev, Korda, FAA, Rublev all in the same week. That's damn impressive. Now, do I love his decision to go to Majorca and play that that tournament as well, leading into this Wimbledon. No, I don't love it because he played Stuttgart, he played Hala. I think he's ready, but he's also got fresh legs. And look at this point, there are plenty more slams down the line for Ugo Humbert. And although this one does feel open again, is Ugo Humbert on my short list of the ten players that could win Wimbledon? I will be shocked if Ugo Humbert wins Wimbledon. Can he make the round of 16? Can he make the quarterfinals? I do think the answer to that question is yes. Absolutely he can. Um, and I just think, again, there's a hubris to him. That first serve just works. Do side. He can go big out wide, hit that slice into your body, go slice down the tee, just find first four hands. Despite the fact that he's only, like it, it, he's taller than you think. I think he's like 6'2", 6'3", but he's not 6'5", 6'6", and yet he serves like it and again his decisiveness it just works on these grass courts was a fantastic week of tennis from him to earn title number 3 in his career and hey 3-0 and in ATP finals. Would you rather be 3-0 and like he is or 0-8 like FAA is? It's a little bit like the early LeBron-MJ years where it's like, yeah, LeBron's 3-6, and but he's made nine finals. Yeah, I know, MJ's 6-0. We're waiting for FAA to get title number one. That's a discussion for another time. Anyways, Hugo Umbert. now, you look for him overall, number 14 in 2021 ELO rating. He's 14-13 and 13 overall in the year, but when he gets hot, he plays outstanding tennis as we saw at the end of last season. You look for him ELO rating-wise right now. Ugo Umber currently number 18 overall. You look grass court-centric. He's number three right now. That is an overreaction Tuesday stat for you. Number three in grass court ELO behind only Djokovic and Chilich. And then again, as I mentioned, 14 in 2021. Yeah, he's a threat. I don't think he's going to win Wimbledon. I do think he can make the quarterfinals. It'll just be so fascinating to see where he lands in the draw. And by the way, with the title up to number twenty-five, that's a peak in the career high rankings. That feels about right for him. He's a top thirty guy right now, and again, only twenty-one, uh, only twenty-three, excuse me, years old. Going to have a lot of Hugo Humbert in our lives. Is he the best Frenchman right now in all of men's tennis? Certainly, you look at the rankings. Monfils, the only Frenchman ranked higher. Other Frenchmen you may consider: Manarino, maybe Gasquet, Jill. Simone, Joe Sanga on his best day? I don't think so. I think it is Hugo Humbert. I think he's the best French male tennis player right now. I mean, if it's him versus Monfils, first round of Wimbledon, who are you taking? Answer that question honestly to yourself. I'll let you think about it. Think about it a little harder. Yeah, I, I we agree. It's Hugo Humbert. There's no denying that. If you disagree, at GreatShotPod, you know where to find me, um, but that's the thought on Hugo Umber, who takes the title in Hala and again knocks off an Andre Rublev uh, in the finals, who has only played 12. 12- grass court matches, as I mentioned, in his career. And you look for Rublev now overall in his last 52 weeks, he's still killing it. Like, he belongs in that top eight conversation. He pencil him into every ATP final conversation. And, you know, I tweeted this out earlier uh, with Feliciano Lopez, I believe, earning his 500th win today. Does Rublev have a chance or of the active guys, who else has a chance to join that elite rank of 54 ATP players in history who have won 500 matches? Well, Rublev's 59-17 and 17 in his last fifty. 52 weeks. If he doesn't hit 500 wins, it won't be because he didn't try hard enough. Uh, finals in Hala is what he needed to just get some more grass court matches under his belt. I mentioned the fact he's eight and four overall. He's only played Wimbledon twice, 2017 and 2019. He's played Hala twice. Those are his four grass court events. This is a big confidence builder. And again, draw was on the easier side. Hatchinoff, Thompson, Cole Schreiber, Basilashvili, who I'm not happy to say it, but he hits the ball so big, absolutely can make some noise at Wimbledon. Um, This was a good week for Rublev, who found his footing, who the heaviness of his ball, just so difficult to respond to on these grass courts, but ultimately Ugo Umber too good in Hala. Uh, in terms of your other semifinalists, I thought it was really good for FAA to follow up his final in Stuttgart the week before uh, by, you know, obviously the big news was he beat Roger Federer in that round of 16, but you look for FAA just over the course of the week, got good wins over Hercott, uh, got a win over Federer, and a win over Marcos Giron, uh before bowing out in three sets, 7-6 in the third, by the way, to Ugo Umbert. Those are two guys who should have quarterfinals on their mind heading into Wimbledon and get some much needed rest FAA gets by bowing out in that semifinal. I mentioned Basilashvili just hits the ball big and again the weight of that shot on these courts really difficult to respond to shout out to Marcos Yaron, who you look now in the live rankings has secured himself a spot inside the top 70 for the first time currently sitting at number 66 in the live rankings which went off the career high of 65 which he hit last week before someone jumped him after a result this week Yeah, guys, just it works across all three surfaces, and it's so great after the health struggles he had to see him healthy and competing well. Uh, Quarterfinals for Corda, his first on grass. He's now done it on all three surfaces. Guy's got the profile of the definition of your modern tennis player. He's going to be really good for a really long time. Uh, Lloyd Harris. Big serve, big forehand, good length, definition of your dangerous Wimbledon lingerer. And then Philip Kohlschreiber. There's some institutional wherewithal there as he makes the quarterfinals as well. That was your other ATP event on the week. Who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is hard True. The world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. Your final WTA level event, the action we saw unfold in Berlin, and let me just say, if this is a hot take Tuesday. I I don't even know where to begin. Uh, my hot take with Ludmilla Samsonova, who was just embarrassingly excellent in her results this past. I don't. Embarrassingly is the wrong word. Embarrassingly for me because I didn't see it coming from the 22 year old Russian in just. A fantastic performance all week long in Berlin, and you look for her, she comes through qualifying. We probably should have known when she beat Anna Konya in the third set, 7-6, that she had this chance to make some noise. And you just look, each and every one of the five matches she played, wins over Von Drusseva, Kudermatova, Tees, Azarenka, and Benchich. That might be your most impressive title of the 2021 season. In fact, that's my overreaction Tuesday take for Samsonova, that her title here was the most impressive title we've seen won In the 2021 season, all of those players are top 30 players. Madison Keys in particular was playing particularly well in Berlin. She's someone to keep your eye on depending on how that Wimbledon draw breaks down. And then, you know, Vika has just played so well all season long. Her aggression, her decisiveness works so well on these grass courts. Samsonova hit her off the court in that 4-2 and two victory, made 70% of her first serves, won 82.4% of those first serve points. She was over 76% in her first serve win percentage in every match she played except for the one against Konya. And maybe that's something to note heading into Wimbledon as well. The Anaconia resurgence, something we will always be cheering for here at Cracked Rackets. But look, Benchich rocked her. In that first set. And of course, it's funny because for... By the way, Ludmilla said Samsonova, who eleven, her ace percentage in the semifinals and finals, 22.9% of her first serves against Vico were aces. 20% of her first serves against Bencic were aces. 1 in 5, folks. That's freaking insane. She was awesome. All week long on serve and plays that big first strike ball. And it's funny because she's got the big forehand backswing, but... Seems to have no problem connecting with that ball on time. And then that backhand is just beautiful. It really is for Sam And again, she just overpowered every opponent she faced. She was only broken seven times on the week in her main draw matches. You look for her now. You know, again, it's been steady ascendance for her. Ed in 2019, number 139. Ended 2020, number 127, but was able to play the main draw of all three Grand Slams for the first time, won her first Grand Slam match this year at the Australian Open, and now, with this title, the first of her career, finds herself at number 63 in the WTA rankings, and look, she was someone who was, uh, you know, a top junior coming out of the junior rankings, and someone who went pro early on, playing a ton of ITF events before she turned 18, and... We're starting to see the fruits of that product again, bear themselves now. She just, there's a decisiveness to her that even after dropping that first set 6 1 to Benchich, where she did not play well, the first serve percentage was at 50%. Meanwhile, Benchich was making 75% of her first serves, hitting the return in the center of the racket every time. It felt like three quarters of her returns were hit for winners. It felt like she was connecting perfectly with every first ball as well that she set up with her first serve. It just felt like Benchich couldn't be touched in that first set and yet Samsonova stayed the course and Benchich's first serve disappeared in that second set. She only made 40% of them in that in set number 2 and you know in set number 3 I think she took a little bit off that first serve just tried to make more first serves in play because of the big cut Samsonova was taking at the second serve but look I mean When Samsonova got a look at a second serve in this third set, she won the point. And there was just a decisiveness with which she played. Just uh, see ball, hit ball big, go to the open space. It was a really, really good performance for her. And again, the the wins she racked up to beat Konya, Vandrusova, Kudermatova, Keys, Azarenka, and Bencic in six consecutive matches. It's your title of the year. And now, you know, you look number 63. She is overall. You look ELO ratings. healthy. Overreaction in the ELO ratings for Samsonova. She now jumps into the 30s with her win, number 36 overall in ELO rating. She's now number eight in grass court specific ELO rating, number 24 overall with her 21 and 12 record in 2021. In 2021, ELO. And look, I guess that makes sense. You look for her, 32 and 20 in her last 52, qualified in Parma uh, where she made the round of 16, qualifies here in Berlin where she wins the title, qualified in Miami where she made the round of 32 before getting knocked out by Maria Sakari, qualified in Adelaide, qualified for the Australian Open. Uh, Look, she made that decision this year on playing qualities of these events instead of staying at the 60K level or the 125K level, and it's paid off for her. And look, that's the sort of risk As a tennis fan, you have to applaud, because that's the most difficult jump to make, from succeeding at the ITF level to going to tour-level events and playing qualies when you're not getting those wild cards. She wasn't the top-ranked junior, as good as she was in the juniors, so the wild cards aren't just in abundance for her to play those events, but... It's been steady progress for her. Now she gets her big breakthrough results. She's comfortably inside that top 75, going to be able to play a full schedule of WTA events and clearly has the power to do it. And again, that backhand is so smooth. And yes, the forehand backswing is big. And if you have a big serve, perhaps you're going to draw an error or two on those returns. But when she's clicking as she was this week, the tennis looked really, really good. And you look for Samsonova now. She's 61-43 and overall. In her tour-level matches, you break it down by surface, she's 34-23 on hard courts, 15-17 on the clay courts, 12-3 overall now on grass courts. Again, a lot of those 12-3 matches came in qualifying, so you need to see the level of competition raised a bit, but certainly she had that competition raised and just... Uh, you know, the fact she's going to be, I believe, in that—well, let's look for Samsonova. I don't know. Did she get into Wimbledon with this result? Does she get a wild card? I feel like she has to get a wild card. Yeah, I think she does get a wild card into the main draw now, and look, that's where she belongs. It was a fantastic week of tennis for her to earn her first WTA-level title, and Look again, in the final, I think this was a really good result for Benchich, who's now seventeen and thirteen in her last fifty two matches, but really needed that win after a tough clay court season where she lost, you know, a bunch of first round or second round matches and just never really found her rhythm despite looking exceptional in her first round win over Potaroska at the French Open, but Look, grass courts are always going to be where she's her most dangerous. And you look overall in her career, she's you know won fifty nine percent of her WTA level matches. She's one hundred twenty and eighty eight on hard courts, 32 and 27 on clay courts, 40 and 17. And 50 matches is a healthy sample size. She's 40 and 17 in her career on grass courts. You look overall for her. She, you know, won the Eastbourne title back in 2015, made the finals of Herginton Bosch back in 2015 as well. You look for her at Wimbledon. She made the round of 16 in 2018 before getting knocked out by Kerber. 2019, she lost a really fun 3 set match to Allison Risk, who, if memory serves me correctly, ended up beating Ashley Barty in that event making the quarterfinals. I mean, look, her first strike, her decisiveness, her power, the first serve percentage is going to be key for Benchich, but she's got all of the tools needed to make a big run on the clay uh, on these grass courts and at Wimbledon and do you want to have her in your top 10? Is that my overreaction here on the Benchige size? Am I about to throw Benchich in my top 10? I think I'm going to do it. I think that's my overreaction here is Benchich is the latest addition into the top 10. And with that in mind, let's end here with a quick Wimbledon top 10 contenders thoughts. And again, I'll get into further depth, more stats, more numbers behind this takes heading into uh, Wimbledon as we get into our preview pods this week on the Great Shot pod. But my current standings on the men's side, let's go Djokovic 1, then a huge gap, Berrettini 2 slight gap, honestly, Medvedev 3, Zverev 4, Tsitsipas 5, Chilich 6, Rublev 7, that's your next tier of contenders, then a gap after that, I don't think Federer's in the second tier, I think with his level of late, with the physicality, the age, the lack of match play, you have to put him in the third tier, now if he gets to the second week, that's not going to surprise me, but if I see him win 7 matches in a row, I honestly will be a little bit surprised. So Federer's going to go in that 8th spot. I'm going to go FAA 9, and I'm going to go Ugo Umber 10. Those are my 10 most likely players to win Wimbledon at the start of this week. Now again, Djokovic is going to win the 2021 Wimbledon men's singles title, and if it's not him, it's probably going to be a guy from the second tier, and I'm not saying Umber, despite him being in the top 10, I think his chances of winning Wimbledon are less than 1%, but he belongs in that top 10 discussion. I think FAA honestly belongs there too. Vesley, Tiafo, well not Tiafo, Vesley, Shapovalov, Atring, Opelka. Could let Tiafo Anderson guys like that. All in the mix, but that's my short list on the men's side. And then, you know, right now on the women's side, like again, the first tier if healthy. Barty won because her boy does her game match up well on these grass courts. Kvitova two. Talk about first strike, ability to play on her terms. We've seen Muguruza win it before. Her length, her confidence in these stages. I think she belongs in that first tier. And Then Simona Halep, obviously, if healthy, would be my number four. But they're all injured, so there's a huge asterisk. That's the if healthy tier number one. After that, you know, kind of a side tier. If there's like a nice little, they're they're parallel with each other. I would say because of the injury questions, you probably have Serena one. I mean, I just, I've seen Svitolina have success at Wimbledon before. It was a good win for her today. I'm sticking by it. I got a lot of crap for it when I tweeted this out. I'm sticking Svidalina at number six. Goff moves up to seven. Conta gonna move down to eight. I'm gonna keep Sockery at. No, 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 no. Am I gonna drop Joe Conta off the list even though she's won a title on grass here at the WTA because of peer pressure? No, I'm gonna put. No. Here's what I'm going to do. Jabour moves up to number seven on the list. Benchich moves up to number eight on the list. Tied for ninth are Kanta. and, uh, uh, sorry, number nine is Kanta. And tied for 10th are Sakri, Mertens, and Goff. And I'm just going to cheat my way to getting those 10 names on the list. But again, pick a name out of a hat. You want to make a case for Pagula? I'll listen to you. You want to make a case for Kennan? I'll listen to you. Keys, Mukova, Risk, maybe even oh, risk. I get I may not listen as closely, or like I mean, Angelique Kerber, it would I guess be fitting for her to end up winning this freaking Wimbledon title with all the chaos that's unfolded. But look, the Wimbledon women's field feels wide open, the polar opposite of the men's side, where it does feel like it's straight up Novak Djokovic is to lose. Uh, but that's where I feel right now. Coming into these Wimbledon top 10, or coming into this Wimbledon, those are my top 10 contenders. But again, those are discussions we will explore with further depth throughout the week on the Great Shot Podcast. As I mentioned, Gil Gross, Ben Rothenberg, Mark Lucero, your usual cast of characters, all going to be joining me to talk top contenders, dark horses, break down the draw, do all the things we do to help prepare all of you listeners for another Grand Slam. Of course, we'll have Great Shot Podcast mini breaks, cracked interviews throughout the week. You can like, rate, subscribe, review them wherever you listen to your podcast. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Again, Look out for all of our Wimbledon preview content. You can find it all on our website, crackrackets.com. But for now, for our super producers, Flieger and Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, that's the break. And we'll see you all just a bit later. Thanks, everyone.
0: Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.